At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. The word of the Lord. So many diet programs don't work. Uh, when I was growing up, I never heard of a diet program, not once. You know, we ate and the food was good and we were grateful to have it again the next day. That was our diet. You know, but as soon as I set foot in this country, I mean, there were diet programs everywhere. You know, the South Beach diet, the Atkins diet, the Zone diet, Weight Watchers, low fat this, low carb this, low sugar everything, you know, and then more recently, the paleo, paleo diet and keto diet, all of these different things, you know, Whole30. Now, of course, some of these things work to a point. Uh, the problem for many people is that they struggle to keep the weight off. They may get to their goals, uh, but then a few months later, they're back right where they started. Now, why don't they work? Well, in essence, the diet doesn't work because the person made themselves do the diet for 30, 60, or 90 days, grinding it out, but they never never learned to love new foods. They never learned to love new uh, eating habits, to, to love exercise. Deep down, Chips Ahoy and Late Chips held the key to their eating heart. And it doesn't take much for that door to swing wide open. Now we continue our series, Smokes and, uh, Smokes, Smoke and Mirrors, Deciphering Truth in a World of Truths. We're looking at the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes with the goal of unearthing some of the illusions that we build our lives on, illusions that pose as truth. We looked at naturalism, we looked at intellectualism, today we're looking at hedonism. Hedonism. Now, hedonism is the belief that uh, life should be all about the pursuit of pleasure. More, more properly, the belief that pleasure is the highest good and uh, proper aim of human life. Now, you may have heard parents say something like this. I know I have many times. Um, say something like, well, I just want Billy to be happy. I just want Bethany to be happy. Now, parents mean well. You know, they, they want their children to have good lives. I have children, and I too want them to have a good life. But if you think about this, when we say statements like that, we elevate happiness to the highest good. But what if what makes Billy happy is alcohol? What if what makes Bethany happy is giving her body to many men? You see, the pursuit of happiness is so important to us in our culture. We've enshrined it in our constitution. But what if the pursuit of happiness gets in the way of our happiness? To go back to the example about diets, you know, the person starts and they go after it, you know, they're grinding it out, but they never learn to love new foods, new eating habits, exercise. And so therefore, clearly they started this goal because the diet, because they wanted to look better, lose weight, feel stronger, be healthier, all of that. But there's something they loved even more, their old way of eating and living. And so their mind said one thing to them, but their heart said something else. This is analogous to what people who follow Jesus experience. With their minds, they may say, I follow Christ. 
but their hearts say something else. I love money. I love sex. I love myself. I love hating on people. I love my reputation. I love the rush of power. I love TV. Whatever your heart loves, that's what rules you. And it's why so many Christians make little progress in their Christian walk because they never address their hearts. And so here's the question that we are probing today as it relates to pleasure. Why is pleasure so short-lived? Why is pleasure so short-lived? Look at Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So after his analysis of nature, of all things that are done under heaven, his analysis of wisdom, he now, the teacher now turns to pleasure, and he talks to himself in the second person. He says, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Who's you? Himself. It's kind of like when you see a basketball player getting ready to take a shot, saying to himself, come now, you got this, right? Who's he talking to? Himself. Now remember the larger question we're probing. What do humans gain from all their toil? That's what we're after. And so he now turns to pleasure and he gives us his conclusion right there in verse one. Behold, this also was vanity. So going after pleasure, he says, is fleeting. It's elusive. It's empty. It lacks substance. Verse two basically means what's the point? He says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And so he engages in this experiment to probe this issue of pleasure. Now, you know how sometimes you'll watch a video and they're doing something dangerous or, or foolish, and they put a caption that says, this stunt has been performed by professionals, do not attempt at home. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, that's what I say about this experiment that the teacher engages in, okay? Do not try this experiment in your own life. Learn, learn from his conclusions. So he starts with wine, wine. Look at verse three. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he starts the experiment with wine, but he doesn't just say, I'm gonna get wasted. No, what he's after is he wants to understand the folly of drinking. And so he wants to, to let his body, you know, experience the effects of wine, but with his mind, he's still holding on to wisdom, kind of analyzing it. What is this doing? Is this any good? Is this what people should be doing with their short days of life? Now, personally, I took a different approach at understanding the, uh, the folly of drinking. I looked at a bunch of people who like drinking and getting drunk, and I looked at their puking and driving, and I said, that can't be good for you, you know? But to each its own. Then he goes on. And he starts getting into all these building projects. In verse 4, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in 
Jerusalem. So he undertakes all these building projects. He does architecture. He plants vineyards. He grows gardens. He builds parks. He plants all kinds of fruit trees. He makes pools that, that water the forest. This is no subdivision pool. This is like a resort. There, there are many pools that are irrigating the whole forest. Now, have you seen those HGTV mansions? Or the houses they show, you know, for, of Hollywood stars uh, featured in different magazines. Or even closer to home, the Detroit Free Press, the column that's called uh, Michigan House Envy. You know what I'm talking about? Michigan House Envy. What about that title? They're not even trying to be subtle about what they're after. You know, we want you drooling over these houses. We want you to think your house stinks, you know, compared to these. Well, the teacher went after the pleasure of this kind of achievement, this kind of aesthetic, this kind of skill and command of resources. And so he wanted to master uh, his environment. He wanted to master the earth, but that wasn't enough. He also wanted to master people. So he bought many slaves, male and female, and many of them were born in his house, but that also wasn't enough. He wanted to ma master the animal kingdom. And so he had great possessions of herds and flocks. Now, I want you to notice two things about this. First, notice the similarities in this description with the account of creation in Genesis. In Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, but then he, uh, he creates all kinds of plants and, and, and trees of all kinds of you know, fruit. And then he, uh, he creates the garden and makes it beautiful and expansive, and he brings the man and the woman, and he places them in it, and he brings the animals to them to name them. So garden, plants, animals, people. Those are the same things that the teacher gave himself to. Gardens, plants, animals, people. It's almost as if he has this godlike ambition. And he wants to imitate God in his creative greatness and derive great pleasure from that achievement. The next thing I want you to notice is the focus on self in all of his activity. Look at verse 4 again. He says, I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So his pursuit of pleasure in all these great works is wholly self-indulgent and self-focused. Guys, the pursuit of pleasure turns us inward. And it gets worse. Verse 8. I also gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So his silver, his gold are growing. He's got other kings that are paying him taxes and a tribute. He's amassing these things. He wants to be, he has a choir. Uh, he has many concubines. So he wants to be delighted in song and in bed. So he's got Wall Street, Hollywood, and Playboy. He's doing all of this. He's giving himself to all of these things. He's the kind of person that we would say, man, he's got it all. If he was alive today and he lived in Michigan, he would own the Lions, the Tigers, the Pistons, the Red Wings. He would own yachts and jets and mansions, all in pursuit of pleasure, sensual, sensual pleasure, pleasure in achievement, uh, in power, in reputation, in legacy, Verse 9, he says, so I became great and surpassed all who are before me in Jerusalem. 
also my wisdom remained with me. So what's his conclusion? Why does he conclude after this whole experiment? Again, here he's invoking uh, Solomon. If you read Solomon's exploits, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, you know, you, you'll just see all the massive amounts of, of, of things and works that he did and the pleasures he gave himself to. What's the conclusion after this whole thing? He has two in verses 10 and 11. One is more provis- uh, provisional. The other one is more ultimate. What's the provisional one in verse 10? He says, and whatever my eyes desired, <clears throat> I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So he tells us very honestly that he kept from himself, from his eyes, nothing that they desire. You know, he tells us that his heart found pleasure in his toil. So all those those things that we just looked at gave him great pleasure. In fact, he says that the reward for all his toil was the pleasure of doing it. That's what brought him great pleasure. Now, the word translated pleasure is not a negative word. Oftentimes, as we hear that word, we think like, ooh, bad. Now, the word itself is not negative. Actually, it's translated joy in Ecclesiastes in a number of other places. Let me read some of those references to you. In chapter 2, verse 26, he says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, pleasure, So God gives us these things. Verse 8, 15. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So here we learn something very powerful. Again, probing this question of of, of the gain, the gain that we have from our toil. And here's what we learned. There's a difference between toil as chase and toil as enjoyment. There's a big difference seeing our work as chase after something else or seeing our work itself as enjoyment. That's what the teacher says. He says, my joy, my pleasure came from all my toil. This was my reward. If you think about it, so often we do not view our work as enjoyment, as pleasure. No, we view it as a means to a pleasure. Do you see the difference? Say that you're a doctor and you say, you know what? Seeing 30 patients a day doesn't really get my juices going. I see medicine as the work that will allow me to live the lifestyle I want. Do you see that? In that case, the doctor doesn't see the work itself as joy, as pleasure. No, it's a means to something else, something else he or she is chasing. Fleeting, this is fleeting. You'll find yourself after that thing the rest of your life. It'll be elusive. I was watching Seinfeld interviewing Barack Obama in his show, you know, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee. And, um, and so they're talking, they're talking about, about how to handle success and how so many people wreck their lives uh, because they don't know what to do with the fame, with the money, with all those things. And at one point, Obama asked Seinfeld, so how'd you keep your life from going off the deep end? And Seinfeld said, uh, I fell in love with the work. I fell in love with the work itself. You know, he realized that the work itself was a gift that he got to give to the world. But if you think about it so often, listen, you guys, pay attention to this because you and I do 
work, we do things all the time. But so often we see that work not as enjoyment, not as pleasure itself. No, we see it as the thing that is going to allow us to then get to the pleasure, whatever that is. What we want to learn is to, see, to fall in love with the work itself, to enjoy the work itself. This is what the teacher says. My joy, my pleasure came from my toil. That was the reward. So that's his first conclusion. But it's more provisional. There's, there's another, there's a second conclusion that is more ultimate. And we find it in verse 11. Look at what he says. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This conclusion is in line with what he's told us about um, when he studied nature, when he studied all that is done under heaven, when he studied wisdom, and now after his quest, after pleasure, he says, all is vanity. Striving after wind, it's, it's elusive. You, you can't hold on to it. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. What he's saying is, yes, you should derive great pleasure from the toil that you have because it's what God has given you. It's the lot in life that God's given you. It's your reward. So eat with a happy heart. Enjoy your husband, enjoy your wife with a happy heart. Do with your hands with a happy heart. Whatever it is that your hands do, that posture is so great. That posture of, of being able to enjoy what God has given you in the here and now, that is better than chasing after something else. But even that, he says, is vanity. Even that is striving after the wind. There's no lasting gain. It's an illusion. And so what is solid reality? What is solid reality? To experience that God is a well that never runs dry. God is a well that never runs dry. Okay, so here we return to my initial, our initial observation about diets that don't work. The people went after them, grinding it out 30, 60, 90 days, but they never le learned to love new foods, new eating habits, exercise. And so they went after it with a certain goal in mind, but there was a deeper love they had. Their mind told them, you want to look better. Their heart told them, go wrap your fingers around that chocolate bar. Now, how does that example relate to this text and the Christian faith? Because Christians say with their mind, I follow Jesus, but with their heart, I love money. I love sex. I love my reputation. I love hating on people. I love myself. I love the rush of power. I love TV, on and on. What do you love? What do you like really love? You don't have to, you don't have to think. You don't, you don't have to make yourself love this. You love it. And whatever you love, that's what rules you. And so unless we learn to address our heart we're going to make little progress in our Christian walk, in our walk with Christ. Read with me one more time, verse 1 in chapter 2. Look at what it says. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. But now I'm going to read for you Psalm 27, verse 8. So just, you can jot it down. But here's what Psalm 27, verse 8 says. You, meaning God, 
you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. You see what's going on in these two verses? So in Ecclesiastes 2, 1, the heart is saying, I'm going to go after pleasure. In Psalm 27, the heart is saying, your face, O God, do I seek. One's going after pleasure, the other one's going after God. You see what goes on in your heart. Both of them are coming from the heart. My heart says this. What's going on in your heart is the most important thing about you. And by heart, I mean your essence, your center, the center of your being. Your mind may believe something, but if your heart believes something else, if your heart loves something else, that will win the day, always. So let's look at this heart-mind dynamic in unbelievers, in young Christians, and in maturing Christians, okay? For someone without faith in God, their mind and their heart are in sync. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have conflicting thoughts, of course, they, or emotions. Of course they do. You know, uh, it, they may come from their conscience. They may come from their experience. They may come from their self-interest, right? There's like a wrestle between, you know, what, what they want to do, what they think they should do, and so forth. What I do mean, though, if they do not have faith in God, is that they do, they're not trying to conform to the character of God. So, for example, let's say that the heart of an unbeliever loves money, there is no word of God coming to them in power saying the love of money is a root of all evil. You're going to pierce yourself with many griefs. There's none of that. The heart of the unbeliever loves money and the mind keeps finding reasons and ways to make more money. They're in sync. Now let's look at a, a young Christian. Now incidentally, young here when I say young Christian, young has little to do with your age and little to do with how long you've been a Christian. There are baby Christians that have been in church for 20 years. They've not matured. They're not maturing. And if that's you, accept that that's where you are. There's no sense in pretending. But then go to work on your soul. But for, 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 a, for a young Christian... What's happening is the mind of a young Christian knows truth from God because they've heard it many times in, in, at church or through scripture, but their heart has not been trained to love that truth of God. So they're the person doing that diet, right? That says, yes, this diet is good, but their heart loves the, the yummy, greasy foods or whatever. That's where the young Christian is. They have truth, but their heart has not been aligned with that truth. So, for example, the mind, um, say that the word of God says to this uh, Christian uh, that they should show hospitality to strangers, as Hebrews tells all of us to do. So, show hospitality to strangers. That's what the truth tells them. They, their mind knows this, but their heart loves TV. Their heart has trained itself to, to finish the day every day watching, you know, some good dose of TV so that hours and hours a week are flushed down the toilet watching TV. And there's no time for people. There's no energy to show hospitality. So if you were to ask that person, do you follow Jesus? They would say, yes. But what they really follow, because it's what their heart loves, is TV. You see how this works? 
You could do the same with the love of sex, the love of reputation, the love of power, the love of money, the love of whatever. What is it that you love? That thing that you love without effort, that's what rules you. You may have truth from God in your mind, but your heart has not learned to love what God loves, which is what the maturing Christian does. So let's talk about the maturing Christian. Now, when I say maturing Christian, I say maturing rather than mature because maturing shows awareness that we are all in progress. You know, when you say mature, I'm a mature Christian, it has like a ring of of completion. Like, hey, I've matured. I've arrived. I'm up here with the Lord. Mm, That doesn't really work so well. Maturing Christian shows that we understand that, hey, we're in progress, that This is something we're never gonna finish, that we must remain vigilant and we're gonna stay close to the Lord all the days of our lives. And so what do maturing Christians do? And this is something that they've been doing for a long time in their lives. This is something, this is a process that's been happening in their lives for many years. First, they know because scripture tells them that there are many things their heart loves that are out of step with God's will. So first thing, A maturing Christian knows there is so much in my heart that loves what God hates. You just know that because you've been walking with him for a long time and you've been taking a good look at what's in here, what's driving you. So, for example, Galatians 5.16, Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the flesh is our human nature that's not controlled by God's spirit. That's what Paul means there by flesh. Well, what are these desires of the flesh? Well, Paul goes on, same chapter, a couple of verses down. He says, the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage or anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So the maturing Christian has made peace with the fact that their heart desires, loves many things that do not please God, and he or she has also made war against those very things for many years now and is not relenting. That's the first difference between a Christian that could be at church forever, but never mature, never be in that process of maturing, and the one who is. They know what is in their hearts. They don't trust it. And so they go to war against those very things. See, when we're not mature as, as, as Christians, we try to convince ourselves that our desires really are good. They really are noble. They're really not as bad as they are and that God should really give them to us. But when you're maturing the faith, you have a healthy suspicion of what you find in here. Now, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know if you've been at church for a while where I've seen Christians be naive or oblivious or ignorant is in connecting the fact that they do all these different things that Paul talked about here because we get pleasure from them. We get pleasure from them. We don't have to try to do them. 
They come to us naturally. We seek after these things. And oftentimes they've not connected that the only way to overcome them is to retrain their hearts by the power of God's spirit to have new pleasures. You must retrain your heart by the power of the Spirit to have new pleasures. Listen to me. It's not enough for you to say, I love pornography and I shouldn't. That's not enough. I love sex outside of marriage and I shouldn't. That's not going to get you anywhere. I love alcohol and getting drunk. That's not going to be sufficient. And you can keep doing this with whatever thing you're thinking about right now. Hopefully you have by now. Hey, what is it that I love? What is this pleasure that I go after? It's going to be different things for us. It's not enough to say that. It's not enough to say, I know the Bible tells me I shouldn't love this, but uh, I do love it. That's not going to get you anywhere. The only way we're going to overcome those desires, because if you think about this, these things go way back for you, maybe into your childhood. That's how you learn, or, or definitely into your adolescence. That's how you learned significance and value and meaning in life. So it's not just going to go away by saying, oh, I shouldn't like this. It's hard. No, you need to retrain your heart by the power of the Spirit of God to have a new pleasure. And what's that new pleasure? To taste and see that God is good. God is good. Because this is where the battle is won or lost. Getting to that place where we really believe, where we really then go and and fight to get before God because we know that he alone, he, not his law, although his law is him, but him, all of him, all of God, his person, his holiness, his love, his affection, his promises, his purposes, all of who God is, that he is good, that he is more satisfying than any of those other things. So let me just give you a couple of Psalms to think about. Psalm 25, 15. I love this. It says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. You see that? My eyes, the Psalm writer is saying, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. You know how much of the things that we love that are out of step with God come through our eyes? Start a journal. Jot, in, jot down the things that you love. By things you love, I mean things that they go down here and you experience them as, mm. This delights me. Ooh, this delights me. That. Write those things down and take note of how often those things come to you through the eyes. Maybe you saw a woman. Maybe you saw a thing, an item, a gadget, and it just quickly went from your eyes straight to your heart and it's chewing on it. It's loving it. It's loving that attention. It's loving that whatever, that status, you know, power, satisfaction, whatever that is. Your eyes must turn to the Lord, must be ever before the Lord for you to be able to walk away from that thing. It's the only way that happens. Have you noticed that our eyes can only be fixed on one thing at a time? I can't look at Ken and a jet at the same time. It can't happen. It's like, it's not gonna work. And that's what we try to do so often. We say, yes, I love Jesus, but we're fixated on this thing that's taking us away from him. And we will not walk away from it. How do we think we're going to have victory? What are your eyes fixed on? 
Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Do you see that heart? I have set the Lord always before me. What do you set before you? What is it? After you leave here today, late tonight, at 10 p.m., at 11 p.m., at 12 midnight, what do you set before your heart? Before you? What are you going to do tomorrow? What do you set before you tomorrow? It's only when you set the Lord before you. Always, he says, always. Not just on Sundays. You keep doing that. 20 years from now, you're going to be in the same stuff, enslaved to the same things, far from God, not making any difference for the kingdom. Why? Because your pleasure still comes from something out of step with God's heart and will and person. Psalm 16, 11, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. Where are those pleasures that are not short-lived? In the presence of God. That's the only place. You know, I've, I've tasted this. Oh, I'm far from finishing. I will not finish, but I've tasted this kind of transformation. You know, I've seen pictures or items or things that before used to go straight to my heart and be like, ooh, I love this. This is so satisfying to me. And I've been able to see, again, after years of struggling against my heart with the help of God's spirit, been able to see that and be like, there's no life in this. There's no joy in this. This is so short-lived. This is an illusion. And I praise God when that's the case. I'm like, wait, what? Really? Like, do I really feel like that now? About that very thing that before used to have like, it was like a magnet. Broken. And I'm like, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please give me more. Give me more. I want more, more of you. I want to walk away. I want to walk away from the TV. I want to walk away from the person or the image that leads me to sexual sin. I want to walk away from thinking that money is power, whatever. I want to walk away, God. I want to walk toward you. I want to fix my eyes on you. I want want my eyes ever to be toward the Lord. That, that. You see, the source of our pleasure must become what gives God pleasure. And there are so many things that scripture mentions that bring pleasure to the Lord. But I'll just draw attention to one, perhaps the the most important one. In the gospel of Matthew, there are two times when a voice from heaven, an audible voice from heaven speaks. This is very rare. When I was little, I thought that God talked from heaven all the time. And then you go to the Bible, very few times does this happen. But in Matthew, it happens twice in the ministry of Jesus. And it happens at these key moments of his ministry. You know what they are. His baptism and the transfiguration on the mountain. And both times when the voice from heaven says is almost identical. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you see it? What gives God great pleasure is his son, his son Jesus Christ, who he is, how he follows the Father, how he obeys him, how he trusts him, 
how he will turn to nothing on this earth. Nothing that the devil can throw his way has any, any power over him. How he went devotedly to that cross for our sins, for our life, for our eternal future with God. How he bore the blame. He bore our sin all. He drank that cup all the way to its bitter end to deliver us. To set our hearts free so that we could come to love God from within. So we could come and find God pleasurable. Do you find God to be pleasurable to you? Or do you stay always, always seeing God only as imposition, command? Oh, I wish this was not what the Bible says I should do. Please don't stay there. That is, there's no life in it. The Son of God delights the Father. And so church, this is our mission. This is our purpose. This is our highest achievement in life, to delight in what God delights in. And he delights, delights chiefly in his Son. So treasure the Son. Love the Son. Train your heart to fix your eyes on the Son. Follow him. He is a well that never runs dry. He says to us in John 4, whoever drinks the water that I will give him, her shall never be thirsty again. Turn your eyes ever toward the Lord. Set him before you always so that you may learn that in his presence, in his presence alone, there's fullness of joy. Jesus died to free our hearts from the enslavement of the flesh so that our hearts would be free, free to delight in God. God is a well that never runs dry. Let's pray. Father, Ecclesiastes is so convicting because it's willing to look so in such a raw way, such a detailed way, at all the projects that we undertake in life that to us scream victory and meaning and deep satisfaction. And Ecclesiastes says, vanity wind there's nothing to be gained under the sun so father i pray that we would listen to this peculiar voice of your word and believe that solid reality is found somewhere else in loving you and fearing you and being close to you, near you, in seeking your face. I love that invitation of Psalm 27. Seek my face. My heart says, your face, Lord, do I seek. How beautiful. Father, I pray that you would speak to everyone here. You would invite them. You would draw them in by the beauty of Jesus. He's so beautiful, he's so attractive.
Father, may, may nothing steal his glory from our lives. Why, why, why after seeing him, the, the one with true living water, why do we go and give ourselves to broken cisterns that hold no water? Why? Why do we keep doing that, Father? Please help us. Oh, give us eyes to see. Stop our blindness. Stop us dead in our tracks, God. But let us come to see and to know from the heart that in your presence are pleasures forevermore. That even when our Christ leads us to hard places, that we may still find pleasure, not in the hardship, but in the Christ who leads us and holds us and keeps us. Oh God, if we're gonna make our lives a life of pleasure, let it be pleasure in Christ. We can have as much of it, as much of Him, and it will never, ever kill us. We love you, Lord. We trust you. We delight in you. And it's in that delightful name of yours that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.